after arguing about who was the greatest, and then watching Jesus disrobe, wrapped a towel around himself, and began washing their feet, the disciples watched in shame. No one said a thing until Jesus got to Peter. Peter broke the silence by dramatically declaring that he would never let Jesus wash his feet. But then, after being told that if he didn't let Jesus wash him, he could have no part with him, he reversed himself and asked Jesus to not only wash his feet, but his hands and his head also. Jesus responded by noting that Peter didn't need a bath, that he was clean. But then, after apparently looking around, he added, but not all of you. Now, John notes that he said this because he knew one of them was about to betray him. You know, John is the only one to report this event for us, and we're very fortunate that he's the one to do so because John was not only an eyewitness to it, but also a master with words. Besides being inspired by the Holy Spirit to ensure accuracy, he had the ability to use very simple statements to convey profound truths beneath the surface of the obvious. An excellent example of this can be found in our text for today. As he pictures Judas leaving the upper room, John comments, and it was night. You know, that's more than a statement concerning the time of day. That's a description of the condition of Judas's heart. He was turning his back on the sunrise from on high. He was going out into the night, into the darkness that had engulfed his heart. Well, let's look at the scene that precedes John's statement, and it was night. We're in the 13th chapter of John's gospel. I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen. But it is that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. From now on, I am telling you, before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me. And he who receives me receives him who sent me. Jesus knew his disciples. He, he knew them intimately. He had personally chosen each of them. He had lived with them for nearly three years. He had watched them closely, and he knew what was in their hearts. And not only did he know what was in their hearts, he also knew what had been prophesied. Paraphrasing something David had written in Psalm 41, Jesus said, he who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. Someone who was sharing in that last supper with Jesus was going to do something to hurt him. Now, David had been talking about Ahithophel, 
a trusted friend and counselor who had turned on him and joined his son Absalom in rebellion against him. David expressed his pain in Psalm 41.9, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Like a trusted horse that had always been steady, but then kicked the rider when he least expected it, so had Ahithophel lifted up his heel against David. And it hurt. David expressed his pain in Psalm 55, verses 12 through 14. For it is not an enemy who reproaches me, then I could bear it. Nor is it one who hates me, who has exalted himself against me, then I could hide myself from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, and my familiar friend. We who had sweet fellowship together walked in the house of God in the throng. What had happened to David, the king of the Jews, would also happen to the son of David, the one who would reign on his throne forever and ever. It was a prophecy made by parallelism. It wasn't a specific statement about the Christ, but Jesus knew that something was about to happen to him that would parallel what had happened in David's life. And as we know, prophecies are often veiled in the Old Testament until they're brought to light in the New Testament. But Jesus knew that one of his disciples was going to turn on him. And he wanted the disciples to know that he knew it. He didn't want them to think that what was about to happen was unexpected. What was going to happen had been hidden in the scriptures for nearly a thousand years. And as the great I am, he had put it there. He knew what was going to happen. And he knew what was going on in the heart and mind of Judas. In fact, back in the sixth chapter, John had noted that Jesus knew from the beginning who would betray him. Jesus had been teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum, and his message wasn't being well received at all. Now, and he could tell. And he openly acknowledged that some of them did not believe. It was then that John noted Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. Now, as we noted when we studied that passage, we really aren't sure what was meant by from the beginning. It could mean that Jesus knew it from the beginning of time. Others, however, believe it's simply saying that Jesus knew from the beginning of his sermon that some wouldn't believe it or that he had discerned from the behavior that they wouldn't believe. As it relates to Judas, similar meanings have been suggested. Some believe this indicates Jesus knew from the beginning of time that Judas would betray him. Some even suggest that it had been predetermined by God that Judas would be the one to betray Jesus. Now, I have a serious problem with that because it undermines free will and makes Judas into nothing more than a pawn. But obviously, if Jesus did know that Judas would betray him from the beginning of time, he certainly knew what he was going to do when he chose him. That would suggest that it is primarily what is meant by in the beginning. 
Others, however, believe this is merely an indication that Jesus could tell what was happening in Judas's heart, and he had known for some time. There's no way to know for sure what he meant. But we do know that Jesus did know what Judas was going to do long before he did it. A year earlier, Jesus had said, Did I not myself choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. And at that point, John notes, Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. The bottom line is that Jesus knew he was going to be betrayed. He knew who was going to do it, and he wanted his disciples to know that he knew it. He didn't want them to lose faith in him because of the betrayal. He was going to send them forth with a message of salvation, and he wanted them to have every assurance that he was about to happen. What was about to happen was completely under his control. He assured them that those who would one day receive them and the message they would bring would be receiving the one who had sent them. And even though some wouldn't receive it and receive them, it would in no way indicate that the one who had sent them lacked the authority to do so or that their message was invalid. By the same token, those who received him, who believed in him and stayed with him and stayed true to him, were receiving the one who had sent him. And the fact that someone would betray him would in no way invalidate what he had come to do. Betrayal would change nothing. It was, in fact, part of the plan. Jesus knew it, and he wanted his disciples to know it. So he plainly told them, one of you will betray me. When Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, Truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. The disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know of which one he was speaking. There was reclining on Jesus' breast one of the disciples whom Jesus loved. Simon Peter therefore gestured to him and said to him, Tell us who it is of whom he is speaking. He, leaning back thus on Jesus' breast, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus therefore answered, This is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. In a very emotional moment, Jesus openly stated that one of them, one of his disciples gathered in that upper room would betray him. The disciples were shocked. And they had no idea who it might be. You know, they didn't immediately look at Judas and say, ah, we knew you were up to something. Obviously, Jesus hadn't treated Judas any differently than the rest of them. They were at a complete loss to know who it might be, and they all began crying out, Surely not I, Lord! Sad to say, even Judas joined in and hypocritically asked, Surely it is not I, Rabbi. It's interesting that he referred to Jesus as Rabbi 
and not Lord. Jesus responded to Judas by saying, you said it yourself. The others must not have heard it or they just didn't understand what Jesus was saying because they still didn't have a clue. So Peter, as usual, spoke up and tried to find out who it was. He gestured to the disciple who was reclining on Jesus' breast, the one identified as the disciple he loved, and asked him to find out who it was. Now, I think we need to stop here for a moment and clarify the scene. It sounds a little weird to us for a man to be reclining on Jesus' breast at dinnertime until we remember how they were seated. You know, contrary to the popular picture of the Last Supper and even the one in our stained glass, the disciples were probably not seated upright. It was customary to recline at a low table on pillows with your legs sticking out behind you, propped on an elbow, eating with one hand. It would be very easy to lean back and end up reclining on one another. And apparently the one Peter addressed was so reclining. But who was the disciple Jesus loved? The traditional view is that it is John. And since he was very hesitant to mention himself by name in this gospel, the gospel that he wrote, it makes sense that he would refer to himself in such a veiled manner. So apparently John was reclining to the right of Jesus and was in a position to inquire privately, Lord, who is it? And rather than give him a name, Jesus told him it was the one for whom he would dip the morsel. He probably had a piece of bread in his hand, and so he dipped it in oil and herbs and gave the morsel to Judas. Doing so was a common practice among friends, kind of like sharing a bag of french fries. Jesus had probably done the same thing with all of them at one time or another. But tonight, it would have special significance to John and to Judas. It would remind Judas that it was a friend he was about to betray. And it would tell John who it was that was going to betray his Lord, even though it must not have fully registered at the moment. Let's read on. And after the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Jesus therefore said to him, what you do, do quickly. Now, no one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he had said this to him. For some were supposing, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus was saying to him, buy the things we have need of for the feast, or else that he should give something to the poor. And so after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately. And it was night. After the morsel, Satan entered into Judas. Now what does that mean? Does it mean that at that point he became possessed? That something beyond his control took over at that moment? I don't think so. I think it simply means he yielded to Satan's prompting again. That once again he allowed Satan to have his way with him. 
It wasn't something foreign to his character. As we've already noted, from the beginning, Jesus knew that Judas was a devil, that he was a slanderer. John has already told us that he was a thief, that he used to pilfer the disciples' funds, and that that's what got him so upset when Mary poured a fortune in oil on Jesus rather than sell it and put the funds into the purse he controlled. Matthew notes that it was right after that that Judas went to the chief priests and said, what are you willing to give me to deliver him up to you? Luke notes that at that point, Satan entered into Judas. The same thing John notes in our text for today. So no, Judas wasn't a stranger to Satan's influence. He was a man who was in the practice of listening to the devil, and the devil had put the idea to portray Jesus into Judas's heart long before the Passover meal. For some time, he had been an evil man who associated with good men and wanted to appear as one of them. It was now time for him to be exposed. When Jesus could see that he had once again yielded to the influence of Satan, he said to Judas, what you do, do quickly. And that was more than a go ahead and get it over kind of statement. Jesus was once again demonstrating the fact that he was in control of the situation and that he had control over the timing of his death. You know, no one had been able to take him before his appointed hour. On several occasions, we saw him just walk through a crowd that was intent on stoning him or casting him over a cliff. He was in control. No one had been able to take him before his hour. And no one could delay that hour. So Jesus told Judas to act quickly or faster. Jesus was on a schedule that he had prepared before the foundation of the earth. And Judas had become a willing participant in fulfilling that schedule. But Jesus was the one who called the shots here. And he told his betrayer to move a little faster. <laughs> I love that. So Judas left the upper room, and no one knew what he was about to do. Apparently not even John knew what Judas was leaving to do. Jesus had indicated to John that Judas would betray him, but John didn't realize it was going to happen that night. He and the others assumed Judas was simply being sent on an errand by Jesus. He was a trusted friend, and he was the treasurer of their funds. They figured he was going to buy more supplies for the feast or that he was going to make a contribution on their behalf to a poor pilgrim so he could celebrate the Passover appropriately. They had no idea that he was leaving to betray their master. But he was. He went out immediately. And it was night. Just hours before the Son of God would die for his sins, Judas betrayed him. And the next morning, 
after Jesus was condemned and he realized he had sinned against innocent blood, Judas went out and hanged himself. Tragically, he missed the resurrection and the hope it brings. He left Jesus' presence in the night and missed the sunrise from on high. Sadder still is the fact that there are millions who have subsequently left Jesus' presence in the night and completely ignored the sunrise from on high. He has risen. There is no need to remain in the darkness. And even if you've listened to Satan in the past, and allowed him to influence your decisions, maybe even control your actions, it's not too late to come out of the night. Jesus came and died, knowing we would sin against him. He knew from the very beginning that we would sin, but it did not keep him from loving us. The only thing that can cut us off from the love of Christ is walking away from him in the night and refusing to come back to him in the light of his resurrection. Fortunately for us, that invitation is still open. The sunrise from on high has dawned and has dawned upon us. If you've not done so, now is the time to come to the light and to put a positive spin on what Jesus said to Judas, what you do, do quickly. Don't wait. Don't hesitate. The sunrise from on high has risen. Jesus knows your heart. He knows the struggles that you're facing. He knows the mistakes you've made. He even knows what you're planning on doing tomorrow. But he still loves you. And the invitation is to come out of the darkness into the light. Let's stand.